Welcome to Sportonomics, presented by Uncle Charlie. I'm Tyler Webb. And I'm Jake Kranz. And today, Jake, we'll be talking about Twitter's rebrand to X. We'll talk to Brian Davison, a former Nike executive, NBA champion, and now founder, on his interesting path to working in sports. And at the end, we'll be sharing our biggest winners from this week in sports. But first, Jake, my hometown team, the Green Bay Packers, just announced that they've closed on their second investment fund, which now features $95 million in capital in partnership with Microsoft to start investing in startups around sports, entertainment, health and wellness, agriculture, manufacturing, and more. The venture capital firm Titletown Tech was formed by the Packers and Microsoft in 2019 as a way to invest in startups that benefit Wisconsin and Midwest industries. Now, in its first iteration, both parties seeded the fund with $5 million each, and they raised an additional $15 million from 17 different individual investors, which includes the COO of the New York Mets and an executive of the Boston Bruins. And in the first fund, they backed 30 startups, including Overtime, which is the popular sports media company turned live sports league, and Status Pro, which is the virtual reality company that makes the NFL's first licensed VR video game. And out of those initial 30 companies, over half went on to raise even more money in following years. So somewhat of an objective success. And this catapulted Titletown Tech into raising an additional $70 million in new funds this year, which features 10 new individual investors with the hopes of investing in 20 more companies by the end of 2023. Now, Jake, I want to hear your thoughts on this, but it's also worth noting that the Packers are the NFL's only publicly owned nonprofit team in the league's smallest market. And it's clear that they're trying to diversify here the revenue streams outside of just football. But Jake, I'm curious to get your first impressions on this initiative by the Packers and Microsoft. Well, what do you want to know? I want to get your thoughts. I think there's some interesting parallels here with what we've talked about in terms of, you know, what the BAM with the MLB. Like there's all these interesting trends I'm seeing emerging where teams, leagues, owners are investing outside of just their main sports properties. And I understand why they're doing it, but you know, I, I just want to hear your thoughts on why it's helpful maybe for a brand like Microsoft to get in here. Okay. Well, let's start on the sports side and work backwards. So for the Green Bay Packers, a couple of things to unpack. First thing, I don't know if we've gotten to this yet, the the the, the fundraising um, that, that they do from the general public. No, those, we have not. Okay. I, I, I will I will come back to that later then. Um the the reason that I think a football team wants to diversify into something outside of football is because they have to. Like they they are siloed into a sport. The sport is not going to change, and it's a, a lot of the reason why like Major League Baseball has started to invest a lot into technology. And you see you see this across pretty much every single major sports team and league now that they're investing into um, either different companies directly or into different funds as a way to get outside of their sport. They're so limited in what they can do to change their business model um, or adapt to the times. And as new and emerging sports come into the foray within North America, like the only thing that they can do is invest in things outside of their core sport because they can't they can't like they can't change football to be baseball. They can't change baseball to be football. And 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 you can't you can't like if if soccer becomes the preeminent sport in North America. I don't know if that'll happen. Maybe it will. Um, like American football will never be soccer. There's a reason that they're different, but uh, at, at some point these leagues and teams realize, oh man, I, my, my hands are tied. Like I, I am a football right. organization. What can I do outside of that in order to continue to, to grow this thing and move up into the right? Um, I think some more other organizations will be very content with just being an NFL 
franchise and that's probably a fine business to be in. Um, but as, as, as you'll likely allude to here, like it, it is not necessarily save the Packers, like they're, they're in a fine enough financial position, but as, as they went through COVID, like this was a, a really great hedge against their core business model when a, a big chunk of their, their revenue was shut down for really a year and a half. Um, why would Microsoft want to get involved with it? Microsoft is actually investing a lot into the, um, farming infrastructure side of things. Um, I know that this investment isn't directly into that, but it tangentially plays into their investment into the Midwest. Um, they are obviously a software and I don't know, I'd argue they're primarily a software company. They have a little bit of hardware, but they're primarily a software company. Um, and so this is similar, similar to the NFL and a team like the Green Bay Packers. This is a great way for them to, to hedge their bets and, um, invest into an emerging area for for their own brand um, without actually going in and trying to build the infrastructure themselves they can just rely on one of their investments to to do that work for them yeah i want to sit around this idea of covid especially as it pertains to live sports so we obviously saw a lot of live sports leagues exist without fans and teams without fans and as you and i both know as everybody knows that's a huge revenue driver for teams is people coming spending money concessions, spending money on tickets, sponsors willing to put signs up in stadiums. Like this probably drives upwards of 75 to 80% of operating revenue that a team makes every single year. And when that gets stripped away, I think a lot of these teams realize how fragile of a position they're really in. And I'm not going to sit here and say the NFL is a house of cards that could come tumbling down at any time. Like it's a $10 billion business that is probably only going to continue to grow. But at the same time, a lot of these teams aren't always operating on the fattest margins. And I think the Green Bay Packers are a really interesting example of this. Um, I, I look back to, I remember hearing a quote from their president. They don't have an owner because they're publicly owned, but they have a president who runs Green Bay Packing or Green Bay Packer LLC, essentially. And he talked about how if they had to go any more games than they already had to, which was the majority of the 2020 season um, or, you know, 2020, 2021 season without fans, that they probably would have had to start getting bailed out at the league level just because they didn't have as much money in the coffers as some of these other teams that have independently wealthy owners to help subsidize all the losses that they were having without having fans in the stadium. And what was interesting was you look at their operating loss the year of COVID, which was $38 million, but they still had a net income of $60 million, which isn't all that much lower to what they saw last year, which was something in the, in the neighborhood of $68 million, and that was a normal season. And so you say, okay, where did that get made up? Well, they made $120 million based on their investment fund. So as you described, these are non-football related activities that could still go on and operate and make money even when the football part of the business wasn't happening. And I'm not saying that NFL teams need to be heavily leveraged against football because I think as we both agree, football is only going to continue to grow in popularity. The, the revenues are only going to get bigger through these expensive media contracts like it's a good business to be in, but it's also great to hedge against the inevitability that maybe your team's a little worse the next season. Maybe you don't sell as many tickets. Maybe your sponsorships don't go for as high. And you can just feel safe in knowing that, hey, even if the worst case scenario happens, which it did in 2020, when literally no fans were allowed to come to games, you can still turn a profit because you have ancillary uh, revenue driving opportunities. Yeah. I, I, you know, from from like from a truly investment perspective, and I'm not here to give investment advice, like I, 
if I'm the Green Bay Packers, I, I probably wouldn't be uh, taking a a large chunk of our revenue and then putting it into an investment fund. Sure, if you're if you're able to raise money from somebody else and have that be a direct investment into the state of Wisconsin and the communities directly surrounding the facility, awesome. Like that's that's a great way to bring more money in and to um, by extension bring more people in over time and keep more people around. But if I'm if I'm the Rebate Packers, I'm investing every single dollar that I have back into the organization to make it a better fan experience or maybe acquire more land or build new facilities around Titletown in order to which make they have done. fan experience better, which which they also have done. And yeah. they, they may they maybe got to the point where they realize, man, we we literally cannot use another dollar for building more infrastructure here. We've maxed it out completely. We need to go outside of this, and 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 then if that's the case, then then maybe it does make a ton of sense for them to to do that. But for any really any other NFL organization, like the best investment that they can probably make is right back into the the team and the facilities themselves in order to pump that cow as much as it, as they possibly can because that's going to be the core driver for that business. Yeah, I mean, I'll speak from my own experience. Growing up in Green Bay, all the land around Lambeau Field was either a neighborhood that had a house on it or it was a Kmart parking lot that was located right next to the stadium. And those parking lots were used primarily for stadium parking when games happened. And then the Packers bought all the acreage to the west of them, which again, was like a Kmart and a Kroger's and all these, you know, grocery department stores. And they tore it all down and they built what are now, you know, luxury apartments and office buildings. And that's where Titletown Tech is located. There's, you know, a bar, a restaurant, a spa, there's a, a sledding hill and ice rink. Like there's this yeah. experience. But to your point, they can only go fo- so far before they inevitably run up against Highway 43, which is, you know, blocking them off to the right. And then everywhere else around them is some poor old grandma's house that she's probably not going to sell because it's worth millions and millions of dollars and she doesn't want to sell it just to see it get torn down because she can make all that money back on on rentals during during the season but all that is to say they can only build so far they can only build up so high so i I think it does make sense jake that the next logical step was for them to invest in areas outside of real estate and of course the the real estate investment will will probably pay off for them but um the packers are also in an interesting spot and i know this has become slightly a part of my brand where I bang against billionaires that are spending taxpayers' dollars to fund their own inhibitions. And there isn't a specific billionaire here that we can point to since the Packers don't have an owner, but they're still a billion-dollar franchise, and they're they're publicly financing a lot of these things that are happening. Like, they're in their last stock um, offering, which was in 2021, they raised— Which is 60- actually not a stock offering, but go ahead. Yeah, it, was, it, it is described as the worst stock uh, that you can own because it pays no dividends and you're not allowed to sell it. It's, non, it's non-fungible. Like you can't convert it to anybody, anything. You can't you can't convert it to cash. You can't nope. you can't resell it. You can't transfer it to somebody else, and you get nothing out of it. They're not paying you a dividend every year. It's a really expensive memento, and they take that and they sell it for 300 bucks a pop, like they did back in November of 2021, and they raise. $65 million on the back of it for stadium renovations. So they basically crowdfund a new seating section in Lambeau Field that they can, of course, turn around and sell more tickets. and To the people that they're just crowdfunded from. Exactly. <laughs> and so all that is to say the Packers are playing this really interesting, they're, they're existing on this really interesting line where they seem to cry poor a lot. And I do believe that they don't make as much money 
as other teams. They are still frequently in the top quartile of revenue earning teams. I think they'll probably run pretty shrewdly as a business. And of course, they're one of the most popular teams in the biggest sports league in America. So they're going to make a lot of money, but they also get to cry poor because they're the smallest market and they don't have a billionaire owner and they get to do these fun, kitschy things that they've done for years. They've done five times before where they sell stock offerings and it's a fun like crowd rallying activity. But when you really look at it, you're like, okay, you just did a wealth transfer from your fans to your billion dollar team to, to build a, to build a new seating stadium. And you're, you basically make what is the equivalent of a, a season worth of revenue just in a couple months by selling a piece of paper. But which isn't I, all bad though. Like I think there's a lot of good things for it. Well, one, it keeps the team around. Absolutely. And so that's, that's the most important thing. And then two, it, it creates better than a tax. I mean, it's, it's better yeah. than taxing the people that don't have the option. At least these people are willingly, they, they know what they're buying. You know, they're, they're buying a 300 sheet of $300 sheet of paper. So to that extent is better than taxing people, you know, un, un, unwillingly to a certain extent. Sure. I mean, uh, to, to not, we're, we're not a political podcast, but we are not a political people, podcast. People do have a, a, somewhat of a vote, but everybody has the opportunity to opt in. If I wanted to opt in to be a Packers owner, which I never will because I just, see no value in it and I don't like the Packers um I could I could but as you mentioned there is no fungibility to it at all so you can't transfer to anybody else and it's just it's just a way to crowdfund um and yeah they like they they literally have a blank check that they can they can pull from at any any point if they want to uh and if they really needed to make things work in a given year they totally could like their 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 owner has more than a billion dollars, um, if if that makes sense. If you're picking up what I'm laying down, they have the entire state of Wisconsin plus some. Plus a lot. When they did the uh, stats on the last stock offering, only 17% of the stock, you know, was like something like half a million shares or a couple hundred thousand shares rather, it was sold in the state of Wisconsin. And that means the other, you know, 83% was sold outside of the, the state of Wisconsin. So you're getting Californians and Floridians and Texans mm-hmm. to all pay for a stadium that they might have never visited before in in the state of Wisconsin, which is really interesting. I, I want to close on this last point, Jake. What what do you think this says, or, or what, what do you think the psychology is here around the Packers publicly stating that they're doing this to sort of help better the industry that exists in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and more you know more broadly in the Upper Midwest? So, part of the, the research that I did here was the. You know, the people running this fund talking about how there's a sort of brain drain from this part of the country. And I'll even include Minneapolis in this, where it seems like if you're smart and enterprising and you want to work in tech or you want to work in a startup, you're going to go to one of the coasts. You're going to go to Silicon Valley. You're going to go to New York City. You're not going to stay in Minneapolis or more specifically Green Bay. What do you, what effect do you think this has down the line for an organization like the Green Bay Packers if they can retain some of this talent, you know, in the form of investing in startups that uh, you know they have more direct influence over. Yeah, I I don't think they're really thinking about it from a brain drain perspective uh, at all. But I think they're thinking about it from two lenses. If I were, if, if I was them, I'd be thinking about it from two lenses. One, will it make us more money? Um, and that that and then two, um, will it bring more people to Wisconsin and keep more people in Wisconsin, which will subsequently then bring them more money. Um, so, so that, that would be, that would be one and two, like they're thinking about it in the short-term sense of, okay, can we convert this into an organization that will return more money than if we place another dollar into the core Packers 
business of, of, of running a football team. And then secondarily, like, okay, will one of these companies spin up and become a 1000 person company that's based somewhere in Wisconsin and has the ability to evangelize another few thousand Packer fans for life? Sure. I, I think there's an even higher view that you can take, like a 30,000-foot a view that you can take on this, which is the Green Bay Packers only work, and I think they uniquely exist on this really thin ice where you know people can only come in and spend money, and there can only be industry and an economy around the team if Green Bay as a city succeeds. And I'm by no means saying that Green Bay isn't succeeding as a city, but if, if you want to incentivize a certain type of person to move there. They're probably young. They probably have a lot of disposable income and they're probably working in emerging industries and not industries like manufacturing and agriculture that are on or that are in structural decline, but have been the basis of Wisconsin's industry for the last 200 years. And so there probably is some sort of long-term play. And maybe this is just very much like pie in the sky, not it's going to have any tangible impact in the next century, but there's an argument to be made that as long as Green Bay keeps growing, the Packers have a better chance of being a financially viable football team, given the fact that they're in the smallest market in what is a city and a state that is historically been built on industries in structural decline. 100%. And those industries haven't always been in structural decline, but in recent years, yes. Right. And ideally, you'd be promoting industries or promoting people that you know are, are in new and emerging industries. But speaking of decline... Twitter rebranded to X. Easy now. And it seems like fine. Not, <laughs> okay, well, we might have opposing viewpoints on this, so why don't you start? That's fine. Okay, well, let's let's talk about what X is, first of all, and like explain the situation. So Twitter rebranded to X, and what that, what that means, who knows? Um, but what I think it means is I think that they are trying to convert Twitter as a community into an everything app, and, and actually Elon's been very open about that. Yeah, that's been explicitly um, stated. Yeah, he he's been very open about that. What it actually plays out to becoming, nobody actually knows what what it plays out to becoming. I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the different moves that they've made in the lead up to this and how they're all connected. But the dots are starting to connect themselves, and I think it's pretty interesting to see. Um, I think it would be helpful if we explained what an everything app is first. I want okay I want you that. to do that. We can want and then as you. To- yeah. As you're talking, I'm going to pull up Linda Yaccarino, who is the current CEO of Twitter, her description of it, because it was the biggest PR mumbo jumbo I've ever heard. But I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and let you explain in your own words what an everything app is. Okay. So I will give an example that people in the Western world, primarily North America and the United States, have probably never heard of. If they've maybe heard of it, it's probably just through some PR type thing. And then I'm going to give an example that everybody's heard of. And it's technically not an everything app, but it is what an everything app is designed to be. So the first example is a company called WeChat. Um, this is a, an app that is has like a billion users based in mainland China. Um, I believe the company Tencent, which also runs TikTok, is also the company that created WeChat. And what they do is they connect pretty much every element of the human experience into a single app. And what it, what, it, what it actually ends up being is an operating system by which people are able to live their lives off of. And so instead of it just being like, oh, tweeting back and forth with each other and communications, like, um, like a, a WhatsApp as an example, you're actually able to communicate back and forth, uh, pay for things, send people Venmos, um, send people uh, their paycheck, 
do your health insurance, order food, do all these things all within a single interface. Um, and, and it reduces the amount of, of areas where you need to spend time within your life. Um, the example in the Western world that comes to mind readily for me is Apple. It's not an app, but it is a, it is a an operating, operating system. system. Yep. yep. And it is, it is essentially a way of life now at this point. So when Apple was first started, they, they, they had computers and then those computers converted into iPods and then iPhones and iPads. And now they have pretty much every single piece of the human experience, um, is, is built into their operating system and is at the tip of your fingers. And you could live your life without having any external apps on your iPhone. Um, they have quickly become the largest manufacturer of wearable technology and, and watches. They've become the largest watch manufacturer in the world, the largest headphone manufacturer in the world, probably the largest phone manufacturer in the world. I'm not sure on that one. Um, and then they are uh, quickly becoming one of the largest financial institutions in the world uh, as they uh, continue to, to grow and expand their their, their banking arm. Uh, and if they really wanted to ruffle some feathers, they could become the largest advertiser in the world. They already have a little bit of advertising infrastructure built into what they have in their in their operating system. But if they wanted to, they could totally crush Google. Uh, they could totally crush Facebook. They could totally crush all these other platforms that rely so heavily on advertising just by flipping a switch on. Um, and so that, that in my mind, is what an everything app is. It's an operating system of which people can rely on. And it's very different than what we've seen, in my opinion, in the Western world for the last 30 years or so. Everything in Silicon Valley is so focused on growth, 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 growth. How can we get more users? How can we get more people attached to this core product or core offering that they have? And then they forget to think about how can we go as wide as possible with the individual consumers that we already have. And so the bet that I think that Elon is making is that, okay, we already have X amount of daily active users that are engaged with us on our platform. They're interacting with all of our stuff. They trust us for whatever reason to um, be their source of information. And they believe in what we're trying to do. Uh, as a part of that, we're going to start offering them more and more things. And we think we can capitalize all those individuals. And instead of them being worth, let's say, $15,000 to us throughout their lifetime, just from an advertising perspective, they're able to generate $15,000 off the advertising advertisements that they're sharing with this individual. We can convert that single person into somebody that's worth $200,000, $300,000, $400,000 in their lifetime because that's the amount of money that they're going to spend through this everything application or everything operating system that that is X. If we want to wander into the the deep end of, of where X came from and the initial blunder of, of X in the late 90s and early 2000s, we can, we can go there. But I think that's a good starting point for setting the stage. What do you think? What do you, what, well, where's your head at? <laughs> <laughs> I would just like to read what Linda Yaccarino said yeah. about X and see if we can make any sense of this because given the great explanation you just gave, Jake, I think she should have stuck with that. But instead, yeah. she said- well, she, didn't, she didn't call me. She should have. X is the future of unlimited interactivity centered in audio, video, messaging, payment slash banking, creating a global marketplace for ideas, goods, services, and opportunities. Powered by AI, X will connect us all in ways we're just beginning to imagine. And it feels like she just put in type A press release for a botched rebrand 
and make it 280 characters or less. And ChatGPT spit that back out. I, you know, honestly, I'm just a little skeptical, Jake, that this was a good move from a branding perspective. I don't disagree with you on any fundamental level about what Elon is clearly trying to do here and even about the value of an everything app. There's clearly no clear uh, leader in the clubhouse in the Western world for an app that they're sure of something Apple. that they have. It's, it's Apple. It's Apple. Yeah. And, but, and, but when you talk yeah. about a specific app, though, like I understand where you're coming from from an yeah. operating system perspective, but I, I think there probably is still more juice to squeeze in terms of you open one single app and you're able to do all of those things because right now all of these apps operate, operate on a different operating system. But let's put Apple aside. I, I, I do understand what Twitter is or X is, is trying to do. I'm just not sure if tanking one of the most recognizable brands in the entire world was the best way to do it. You know, Twitter is synonymous with live news updates. You know, as a social platform, I think it was the most recognizable, if not one of the top two most recognizable platforms. I mean, you think about like, you know, news programming and, you know, promotional graphics, like Twitter was the place that a lot of people were driving their audiences towards for decades. And now you just tank that and put up what seems to be some half measured X branding that people don't really know about it. And I think the important context here is maybe X in a vacuum is a fine brand. And maybe a hundred years from now, without the context of Twitter, it'll be a fine brand. But I think on the back of all the turmoil that Twitter has been experiencing over the last four months, I think it feels like just another notch of decline for an app that can't really afford to keep having like confusion baked around it. Does that make sense? Kind of. I think I, what I'm struggling with is is pinpointing in your argument like what what your issue with the rebrand is. I think I think I think what you, what you're saying is that you don't like that it it essentially throws the brand of Twitter out the window and it was very abrupt and it's just another another step in in the wrong direction. But like what 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 do you really dislike about? It? I'm trying to pinpoint that and what you're saying. I I, I heard it said by. Scott Galloway, who I've referenced on this podcast before, that if you gave him $10 billion in 10 years, he could not create a brand as recognizable as Twitter. And I agree. I mean, if you think about some of the most recognizable brands in the world that have literally entered our lexicon as verbs, tweeting, Googling, you know, like these are these are things that I feel like you shouldn't just throw away. So we're supposed to be, as Elon says, calling tweets X's now. Like you're basically taking all of the competitive advantage that you had before on all these different platforms, which, as I mentioned, with Twitter in decline, there have been increasingly more platforms that have been vying for the spot that Twitter occupies in our life, that all of a sudden you're stripping yourself down to be on the same playing field as threat. Like, we still haven't decided if it's called threading or posting or tweeting on threads. And it's not for us to decide. Elon had <laughs> tweeting and tweets and the the bluebird like all built into our lexicon and our public consciousness and it seems like he's just scrapping that for some arbitrary reason that we aren't fully aware of and i know people will say he has some grand vision and that's not even to mention what feels like a botched rollout because as you click around twitter everything still says tweet or twitter sports or you know it seems like totally a half-baked measure anyway and i think it just plays into all this general confusion of where the heck is this app going? Like this has been a company in turmoil and with all of these competitors that have been arising, most notably Threads, 
I don't think Twitter can afford to muddy the waters anymore. I, I think it really needed to hammer down and being really good at what it is supposed to be good at. And then from there, they can build build on top of that. But I mean, hell, like two weeks ago, we were limited with how many tweets we could even see on the platform. Like the, the thing that the app is supposed to do, it doesn't even do that well. And so to muddy the waters even more to me seems really, really counterintuitive. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, we are seeing it very differently. So I, I think it is very intuitive, actually. Um, I think that Twitter was in turmoil before the acquisition even happened, and they were already trending in this direction. And this, I mean, whether or not this accelerated, I don't know. There's no way for us to know. But it was it was certainly struggling as an organization. It was not as profitable as an. Or- I don't even know. I don't think it was profitable. I think they were losing money. I don't think it was ever profitable. And yeah. and and you look at that compared to a, an organization like Facebook now Meta um, that is printing cash or Google that is printing cash, and the, the organization was already in trouble. And so the the way that I think they're thinking about this is that it is a vehicle by which they can they think they can get to an everything app faster um it already has millions and millions of monthly and daily active users that that they can lean into and and benefit from all the data they've accumulated from those people over the last 15 to 20 years or so uh and because of that i think that this is a very logical move for them because they are creating something that is different than what Twitter has been for the last 15 years. And I think it would be silly of them to try to create that thing while still being underneath the infrastructure of Twitter or underneath the brand of Twitter because everybody associates Twitter with tweeting. And that's okay. Like that, that, is, that, is, that is what it is. Um, but I, I think that if they, if they really want to go all in on this, this new thing, whatever it is, whatever the, the, uh, the, the pithy... Uh, randomly worded press release means and what I think it means like I, I think that in order for them to get there they need to have it be something different so people can associate it with something different in their mind I get what you're saying I'll again I'll come back to it's hard to build up the kind of brand equity that Twitter has built up and so yeah. to say we can throw it out the window and it's just going to continue to work with X seems a little naive but what I'll also say and I'll now enter to the portion of the conversation where I start agreeing with you is that if anybody can do it, it's Elon Musk. The man is in the news all the time. And by the sheer fact that he botched this rollout, he has made X, you know, enter the public lexicon faster than it ever have would have, you know, ever would have before. And so I trust that he can make X well known, you know, whether that's for good things or bad things as, as yet to be seen. I, I also think, Jake, I, I agree with you to the extent that forever Twitter was not profitable. And people were saying that there was more that Twitter should be able to get out of its own business, that it needed to take a bigger swing, that it being an ad-supported media platform wasn't good enough. It, it clearly wasn't good enough. It never made yeah. any money. And in order for it to be a viable business, it was going to have to do something more than what it was already doing. And so I credit him, Elon, Twitter X, for taking a big swing here and saying, okay, we're going we're, we're gonna to do it. We're going to do it. Everybody has been critiquing us for, for years that we didn't do before, which was, we're not taking a big enough swing. We're just a micro blogging platform that doesn't offer anything else and doesn't even make any money. Now they're trying to do payments and they're trying to do messaging and they're trying to do audio and they're trying to do it all. And you know what? All the credit to them because clearly it was not something that was working beforehand. And so I guess you do have to try something differently if, if you really want to make a big splash and you want to allow Twitter to you know be the force that 
I think a lot of people agree that it, that it could be because as you know, Jake, and it's, it's a good point. They have the ultimate user acquisition tool, which is a platform that it seems like 85% of the Western world is already on and already spending a lot of time with. And that could feed really nicely as, as you describe into a lifetime value that far exceeds anything that Twitter is getting out of its current users. Yeah. The thing I think they're going to really struggle with though, is trust. Um, mm. They, they, as an, as an everything app, I think that's one of the things that they'll really need to have. It's one of the things that Apple certainly has. Um, totally. And it is something that Twitter, especially recently, does not have. Um, I agree. And in a lot of ways, like they've, they've struggled on the, the technology side of things. It's become increasingly more buggy for whatever reason in the last couple of months. And the content there is just so unfiltered that it is really hard to build trust with the community. And subsequently, it's hard to build trust with the brand and the platform that you're on top of. Now, there are probably a, a chunk of people that think that that does build trust, that it is completely raw and unfiltered and anybody can be on there. Um, but I think that's that's an area that they're really, really going to struggle with uh, in order to get this thing to actually work. And, and you know what? Maybe they'll get there. Um, I'm really excited to sit on the sidelines and watch. Uh, the really The really cool thing is that they converted it into a private organization and so We'll have no idea how it's actually going until it actually plays out. And uh, I think as the DAS connect themselves, I'll be excited to be the one that's trying to sit there with a piece of paper and connect them on my own. From a brand perspective, I want to close with this. Do you think that this rebrand to X and what I think we would both agree has been a four months for Twitter where they have been on the decline versus on the incline? How do you think this affects the, a brand's use of Twitter, you know, speaking specifically to a sports brand. Like, do you think come NFL season that we're going to see any market shift in teams or league strategy because of the chaos that has ensued at X over the last four months? Mm, maybe not by the NFL season, but we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Like, if they if they really move quickly at the speed of light, like they mentioned in the uh, the letter to their their employees, I think. There could certainly be a change. Uh, as you mentioned, though, like the entire internal platform of Twitter is unchanged at this point. And mm. it's going to take them a long time to convert that into something that uh, it currently isn't. And they have to untangle the web of the last 15 or 20 years of their existence in order to, in order to get there. And if they know what's good for them, which I don't know if they do or not, I think they keep they keep the core functionality the same, at least in the short term, and they add things on top of it instead of trying to convert the core functionality into something that it's not. Like their their primary uh, flywheel for customer acquisition is Twitter, and whether they like it or not, that is going to be what it is for now until they figure out another way to acquire hundreds of millions of users, which is really difficult to do. And so I think they, they keep the, the core thing, the core thing, and then they slowly add on uh, more services to it until they get it to a point where all those other things collectively overtake the the value of the core platform. Which I think is the crux of my argument in all of this, which is they could have just called it Twitter and much like Meta rebranded and still kept Facebook and Instagram and talked about how they were making a bet at a organizational level that the metaverse is going to take off. I think Twitter could have positioned itself under a 
parent organization called X, which was also developing payment features and audio features and you know various content and, and messaging features. But the core user acquisition tool of Twitter would remain unchanged. And I think in changing, what is that acquisition tool? I mean, the biggest benefit of it, Jake, I think we could both agree was that it was so well known by everybody that it was hard not to be a force in, in acquiring users for some of these downstream X projects. But now changing the name of the core product, that seems, I think, counterintuitive to what the goal of Twitter is going to be in the grand scheme of this whole X experiment. We'll see. We will see. Well, we're going to move on now to bring on our guest, Brian Davison. So I actually got introduced to Brian through a TikTok brand deal as he now leads partnerships on a new sports app called Air. And after being on a call with him, I was enamored by his story. Brian just casually mentioned his roles as a Nike executive, a Milwaukee Bucks front office executive, and now a co-founder of a company called Sports Business Ventures. And when I looked under the hood even more, I realized that Brian was a college basketball player who made it to March Madness as a 16 seed, a former college basketball coach, and a Nike executive who got his start working in a Nike retail store. And as you can probably already tell, Brian is a fascinating guy and someone who I could have talked to for hours, but if you're at all interested in working with sports or learning on where to start, you're going to want to tune in and buckle in for this one. I hope you enjoy. All right, Brian, there's a lot of places to start. I, I think what gets me most excited about this conversation is up until this point, the most downloaded episode of our show has been an episode in which me and my co-host, you know, no guests, no topical, uh, a topical subject for the week. We just talk about our experience in sports business and going through your lineage of how you got to the position you're in and, and all the prior roles you've, you've held in sports is super interesting. So I get super excited for this because I think it's going to be like that episode just on crack because your experience is, is so fantastic. But I do want to start back in your playing day. So you were a college basketball player, um, first at UNC Asheville, and then you went down to uh, Brevard College, which is a Division II school. But you actually made the NCAA tournament as a 16 seed. Could you just talk a little bit about that experience? I I don't get the chance to talk to a lot of March Madness participants, so I want to take the opportunity. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was a, an amazing experience at UNC Asheville. Um, in 2003, we were moving through the conference tournament, um, and we got to the to a chance to get to the ch uh, championship. Um, Alex Craigle hit a, a game-winning shot to take us to the finals, and we ended up winning the big conference tournament with actually – a losing record in the regular season. So oh, wow. we're not favored to win at that point. Um, and we just had some some amazing um, uh, chances to take it to the next level. We did. And we ended up going to the playing game back when the playing game was only one game with two with two teams. So okay. uh, it was against Texas Southern. So we flew out to Dayton um, and just the amazing atmosphere of basketball fans there. And played there one uh, against Texas Southern, who had a UNC Asheville transfer. So someone was at Asheville and then transferred to Texas Southern, and he was the best player on their team. And we ended up beating them, and then going off to uh, play University of Texas. They were the number one team in the country that year. Um, it was TJ Ford, lightning quick. I mean, one of the fastest players I've ever seen on the basketball court. Um, we did not uh, win that game, but just to fly to Alabama, play in the Civic Center there. And really get to see like what that was all about. It was it was just like a, a a blip in time. It felt like you just probably couldn't appreciate it as much as you could have because it just happened so fast. But being on Selection Sunday, doing that whole thing was just a lifetime uh, memory that I'll never forget. 
So I'm always curious what coaches will tell their players in that exact situation where you're a 16 seed going up against a one seed. Obviously now after this year, we've only ever seen a 16 seed upset a number one twice. What are you being told in the locker room? Because you obviously are very aware of the circumstances that you're underdogs. And at the time, nobody in your position had ever won a game in March Madness. So what are you being told to sort of stay within yourself and give yourself some semblance of hope that you could compete in that game? Yeah, I mean, it was our first time ever in the tournament as a as a college and university. So that was the first time we ever made it going against the number one team in the country. Eddie Biedenbach was our coach at the time. And, you know, I think it's a lot of that same preparation and that same mindset going to every game. Like, it, this is a chance for us to prove ourselves. This is a chance to continue this amazing run that we had been on in the month of March. Um, and so we took it on and said, hey, this is a, a clear, clear uh, top competitor that we're going against. And the coaches kept the same process, kept the same scout report, and we just went about it the same way, knowing that who we were going against was TJ Ford and Mouton and all those guys. Um, we stayed relatively close uh, throughout some of the game. We ended up losing about by 18 or so, if I remember correctly. Uh, we had a couple stints that we were like, okay, this this thing is, is closer than we thought. Uh, but just trying to keep that same mindset, going to it and th- with the same approach that we had been going on. Because we, re- we were not favored to win the conference tournament, like I said, and, and we weren't favored to win there. Um, and we kept just, you know, beating expectations. You're used to that underdog mentality. Do you think, my last question on this, I'm just super interested. Yep. When you watch a Fairleigh Dickinson or you watch UMBC pull off that upset, is there a point, if you could put yourself back in their position, where you think those teams are starting to believe that they could actually win? Because I'm sure up until even the last buzzer goes off, they're probably like, wait, we could probably still lose this game. Do you think there's like some inflection point of confidence that you're like, oh my gosh, we could actually win? And maybe speak to your experience playing Texas pretty close, as you say. Yeah, so I, I think yes. I think that inflection point does happen. I do think there's one or two people on the team, whether it's a coach, whether it's a player, it's someone on that team that before the game starts, there's a couple of guys in that locker room that know that they can do it. I, I, I truly believe in that. And I think the best competitors, the the ones that are successful, the ones that think they're gonna go into the game and they're gonna prepare, they're gonna they're gonna give it their all and and, and make that upset happen. Um and I think when that inflection point happens and you go, wait a second, like we're, we are in this game. We are we are doing what we've been doing all season, and we can make this happen. Um, I think then it's infectious, and then it, then it just takes one or two momentum swings in that game for that that to actually come, become true and make the result happen. And so, yeah, I think that is uh, there is that inflection point, and it's an amazing thing to watch. Uh, and I I'm an underdog guy, so when I see that 16 seed, that 14 seed in, I I love seeing that. I love seeing those UMBCs of the world um, come and come and make those upsets. Yeah, same here. So so you transfer to a Division two school in Brevard College. You become a starter, a captain. You graduate in 2007, and then you stay there and you coach for two seasons. So a two part question: One, what were you studying when you went to school, and was coaching always what you thought you were foray into the you know after college life would be for you or was that just something that came up and you took advantage of it yeah yeah no it's a great question uh so Brevard College is about 30 minutes south of Asheville um and I found out about the school when I was at Asheville and when I was looking to transfer out um Brevard reached out and and Coach Jones who was the coach at the time and he was there for a while um reached out to my family and I and, and was interested and it was a beautiful campus beautiful part of the country 
And I said, yeah, let's, let's make this happen. And it was a great decision. It was a smaller school. Um, I was able to start for multiple years, be the captain of the team, you know, do a ton of different things in that university and still part of it to today, till today. And it's just been an amazing experience to be part of that college. Um, and when I was there, I was like, when I get done, I'm coaching. Uh, my grandfather coached in college, my uncle's coach. Um, so I felt like that's, that's my path. I'm going to be a journeyman of a, of a coach and coach my whole entire life. And, um, I flirted with the overseas, uh, stuff and then came back to Brevard college and coach Jones probably on his coaching staff. Um, and it was an amazing experience. We recruited some great players. Um, and those players ended up going to the NCAA tournament from the division two perspective. We had an all American on the team that we, we recruited when I was on the staff, uh, first team all American and made the tournament and, and had another good run there. And I like to always say when I was, uh, 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 I can't remember. It was a junior or senior year at my at my time at Brevard playing. We ended up going back to Asheville and beating Asheville oh, wow. in their stadium. So it was an amazing thing as a Division two school to go back to Asheville and get that W there. It was it was one of my highlights of being at Brevard to to make that happen. So you described how you you coached for two years. You you saw this as your career. You know you, you saw your career panning out as a coach. But then. Something changed, obviously. You, you ended up going to work a retail position at Nike. What was that change? Was it, was it a moment? Was it just a, a, a general you know, interest shift for you? What led to you making the jump away from coaching? Yeah, there was a the definitive moment in my life where I found out about Nike and saw Nike from a different perspective. My whole entire life, I saw Nike as this brand that was inspirational. Deion Sanders, David Robinson, uh, Michael Jordan, and you, you could just name them all in the '90s of the guys that I just loved. Charles Barkley, like had all Charles Barkley's signature shoes, and uh, and I was in Utah on a family vacation, and I said, "Hey, when I'm out there, I should just connect with some people that I know that might uh, be interested in working for one day." And uh, one of my friends said, "Hey, meet this person named Didi Quadradini," and. Uh, I met with her. I met with some the Salt Lake Real, met with the Utah Jazz, met with a couple other uh, professional organizations out there. And Dee Dee said, oh, you should have met my daughter. She works at Nike and gave me her email address. I shot her one email and she said, you could work in retail, you could work your way up there, or you could work your way up into other sports, part of the sports industry. Uh, just whatever you want to do, just, you know, it's a great place to work for. And I said, I took that email I got on nikebiz.com. That's what, what the job site was at the time. Applied for a, a brand new store opening in Baltimore, Maryland um, at Arundel Mills uh, Mall. And then I got a, a store manager position and uh, never worked a day in retail in my life and was there for about two and a half, three years. And that's that was the start of my Nike career. And my goal was to get the Nike corporate from there. And I knew I had to start from the bottom. And I left coaching and my coach supported me and said, if you ever want to come back, come back. But uh, I never made my way back. I stayed with a swoosh for a long time. Yeah. Is that sort of the promise that Nike presents to people that work in their retail stores? Because when I think of you know working at Nike retail, I think of a, a high school or a college kid doing it to make a couple extra bucks on the weekend. I don't necessarily see it as the entry-level position to one of the largest, most recognizable brands in the world. So what was, you know, what was your understanding of your ability to move up into the corporate world? Or were you just thinking, as close as I can get to working at Nike, that's the opportunity I'll take. I that, the latter part of it was the, my mindset. I was a little naive, you know. I was on okay. the East Coast. Uh, Beaverton, Oregon, is three thousand miles on the other side of the country. 
um, did not know how big the company was. They really understand what I was going up against. Um, and I just, you know, I had this mindset of, I'm just going to make it happen. And when I was in the store, I did everything and anything to, to understand what the, the brand and the products were about. And I met my first, first mentor, um, there, Jeff Tapkis, who's a legendary, um, a Nike sales representative who sold the air force ones into the three amigos in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. And that's when that air force one became a lifestyle shoe and became really what it was to today. And so Jeff was in there shopping and he kept asking for me every time he came in to help him shop and see like where the newest stuff was in the factory store. And one day I said, what are you doing like here? Like, why are you, why are you always in Maryland? And he says, well, our office is like 10 minutes from here. I said, well, I thought everybody worked in Oregon. And he said, come on by, check it out. We have a showroom over here. So I got to go in the showroom for two and a half years. I went in there every single day that I was in the, like I'd go over there, then go to the store and work 10 hour shift. Then I would come back the next day before my next shift. And I would do that every day. I would help out as much as I could. And I would see the shoes. I would put the shoes up on the wall. I'd take them down, put them back in their boxes because they were selling the shoes six months in advance of when they were actually in the market. So I was getting to see shoes way before anybody else. I was getting to understand and hear all the stories behind the products and how the brand came because Jeff was there for 30 years at Nike. And so he's been that he was there from the very beginning almost. And he was, he was very well respected in the industry and in particular at Nike. And he's the one that connected me with so many other people. And that's really how I got my start and got out of the retail store was through Jeff Tapkis. And uh, we still talk to this day and he's still a mentor of mine. And, and I, I was a little naive, but I, I, I had the mindset that I was going to make it happen. That's an awesome story. I, like I, I want to pull back for a second because that just makes me think of a, a lot of different things. So I work, Brian, in the live sports industry. And, and so you, you hear a lot of people that want to work as a social media manager or videographer or graphic designer for their favorite NFL, NBA, MLB team, what have you. And you, you think about how few of those positions there really are. You know, if you think every NFL team has two social media managers, well, you're only talking about 64 total jobs that, yeah. that you could possibly have. And thousands of people are applying for those jobs because obviously they're, they're really attractive positions. But I, I love the way you describe just getting your entry into the, the company in any way you can. And to me, in the, in the live sports world, that means maybe you're staying after the game and you're picking up trash, or maybe you're working at the concession stand or in the pro shop, or you're, a, you know, you work in guest services and, and you hear stories. And, and I know people that have sort of worked their way up to all these different levels of an organization starting at concessions or, or ticket sales or, or what have you. Was there a part during that time that you felt like, you know what, maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe there isn't a clear line through to Nike corporate like I want there to be, because I can imagine it's very easy to get discouraged during those two years when you're showing up and, you know, probably doing similar work that like high school kids are doing, not yeah. to discredit it in any way, but you, to, to me, it feels like it would be hard to see the path. Was that ever true for you? Yes. Yes, it was. Um, there was, a, I, I was definitely one of the older people in the, in the store, even just right out of college, a couple of years out of college, I was, you know, college graduate, um, a degree in sports management and, <laughs> And, you know, folding T-shirts at 10 o'clock at night as we're closing up the store. Um, and I had a 45-minute drive home there and back each day. So I had about an hour and a half drive total each day driving in that store. And so on those, on those drives home, I'd ask myself, what am I doing? Uh, and where is this going? And, um, you know, to talk about, like, you know, how you talk about social media managers, two on each team. 
well, the Eakin position is the job that I heard out heard about from Andrea Cordudini. And so I, that's the job I wanted. I heard one job. It sounded like the job I wanted. It was the it was one of the most prestigious entry-level jobs at Nike. A lot of executives had that role. Um, and so I said, that's the job I want. Well, come to find out, there was 24 of them in the country at that time. And I said, okay, there's, I, I want one of, one of those positions. And the likelihood of that is very small. And so I, there would be some times where I would question, hey, can I make this happen? Can, can this actually work out? And there was a couple of times I'm a, I'm a military kid. My dad's a lifelong Navy guy. And so, you know, he, I'd come home, I'd talk to him and he'd say, Hey, Ryan, you can enlist in the Navy. You know, you'd be an officer <laughs> degree. And I thought about it. He, he was all about it. And, and I, I love the Navy. I love the military. And so I said, Hey, maybe that that's where I'll go. Um, and, uh, lucky enough, I met the Eakin in Baltimore and also the Eakin that was in DC. Um, there was two, two different people. And they both came and, and met with me at the at the retail store, but also in that sales showroom. And they mentored me as well and helped me connect the dots within the Econ organization at Nike and the brand marketing side. And that's how I got to where I was. And I would do that. I, I said to them when I when they had their little local events in those retail stores or those, those places in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, I said, I'll pick up trash. Just let me come. I'll like break I'll break down your your, your event, I'll, I'll help build it out. Whatever it is, I don't care. Like, let me just get there and help out and learn. And, and I did, and they let me do it. And I learned a ton from them. And, uh, and it was, it was tough. There were some tough days in there, but, uh, I had a long-term vision of success that I, that I was not going to let not happen. Yeah. I want to footnote that conversation on what an Eakin even is, because I think it's uh, an interesting one that I didn't know much about until I was introduced to you. I do want to touch back on, you describe what your you know, dad was saying that you could just join the Navy. You're a college graduate. You're making, as you describe, eleven twenty-five an hour in a retail position. Um, presumably your friends, your peers, your colleagues are college graduates and off working whatever, you know, I assume like corporate level job that they're working. Did you feel any sort of external pressure? Did you feel any like shame or guilt about the fact that you were maybe doing something that was a little different? And obviously you saw the vision and there was doubt in it, but but you saw the vision better than anybody else could. What were those outside influences and voices sort of saying or, or making you feel as you were you know, starting your journey at Nike? Yeah, that's a great question. I, for me, I, you know, I have an amazing support system. I have an amazing friend group um, and family, of course, that just, you know, they know that I'm going to go try new things. They know that I'm going to be a little bit different in that sense and, and, and trying to push the envelope as best I can. But I think I didn't get a ton of negative, like actual feedback or, or, or impressions on what I was doing. But what I did get as I got a lot of questions, right, was, hey, why, why are you doing this? Like, hey, you know, what's it like to work at a store, you know, and, and you know, check in and check out, you know, for your, your, your lunch hours. And there was a, there's a moment in time at the store where I, I, I remember vividly where I was. In the center of the store, there's this massive, like, mannequin, like, setup of all the new Nike products. And right behind it was this accessories, um, like little little station of little wall of stuff. Well, a couple of water bottles fell off the wall. Uh, someone must have hit them and they fell on the ground. So I saw them and I was picking them up. There was probably like five to 10 of them on the ground. And someone walks up really closely behind me and I'm like, I could kind of feel them. And I look up and it's one of my former teammates from Brevard College, Chauncey. And Chauncey looks at me, he goes, Brian? And, he, and I go, hey, Chauncey, how's it going? I stood up real quick, you know, kind of, like trying to get my wits about me. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, 
He's like, do you work here? I was like, yeah. He's like, why, why do you, why are you working at a, at a retail store? And you know, it's just those type of questions that people couldn't understand that there was like a longer vision at play. And, uh, and it's tough. It's tough to see that long-term vision at the beginning. And it's tough to see it when you don't understand what the actual mission is. And I just knew deep down that, um, there was a chance and I knew if I could get that chance to get my foot on the door, I could, I could make it happen. Yeah. I want to come back to that position of an Eakin, which is Nike spelled backwards, which really only makes sense to me as I read it. What it sort of has this mythical reputation. Uh, yeah. and you said you'd enjoy, you, know, you told me I'd enjoy looking into it and I did and I tried and I still really didn't fully understand what it was. So could you give us like the elevator pitch of, of what an Eakin is understanding it's this infamous entry level position at Nike? Yeah, so it is It is a brand representative localized into the communities all around the country and now all around the world that are product tech reps in a sense that are going to go into those retail stores, go to the local events, go to the national and even global events to make sure that the consumer is understanding, the consumer and the retailer is understanding the products that are being provided or sold on the retail floor. So an example would be I had 50 accounts in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. And I would go to those accounts on a daily basis. And I would say, hey, this is the new LeBron 8. And this has the new Zoom Air in there. And this is the store behind the South Beaches. And then I would go to the NBA All-Star game. Hey, this is the new All-Star colorway behind, you know, back in Orlando when it was in Orlando in the early 2000s. And this is all about NASA, right? We teamed up with NASA. And these are why the colors are orange or gray or whatever that is. And so your product storytelling the the all the the brand narratives of what the company is providing at the local level, um, and from that you you really become the representative of Nike at a, re- a very grassroots level because you're in the retail store, you're at the events, you're with athletes like young athletes, not professional athletes, and you're really understanding the brand and you're you're just absorbing all the product stories, all the brand stories, all the athlete stories, and you're you're the you're the voice. Uh, in the marketplace. And so it's a fun job. It's a it's a very uh, high level job as it pertains to storytelling. And it's just one that you have to be able to build connections and at the same time be able to storytell. Yeah, it does seem like a really multifaceted position in that sense where you're being trusted as this brand evangelist, you know, a face of a brand for you know a couple hundred mile radius. Um, but at the same time, you have to have like a really in-depth knowledge about the product and about the story behind the product. And um, you have you have to be good enough to sell somebody on on the story of the product and inevitably why they should spend their money on it. Uh, you, you mentioned how you you won the Eakin Award in 2012 um, for Eakin of the Year. What does what sort of things do you do to to win that award? You mentioned there are 24 people across the country. I'm sure all you know young aspiring Nike employees like yourself. But uh, what does an Eakin do to win an award like that? Yeah, I mean it's it was something I had my my eyes set on the second I heard about the award. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit to tell you about somebody that was another very pivotal person in my career, Nico Harrison, who uh, was the, the head of sports marketing for Nike basketball at the time and now is the president and GM of the Dallas Mavericks. Um, I started doing informational interviews with him the second I got the Eakin job because I said, that's the job I want. I want the Eakin job. I got that. I, I obtained that. The next job I want is sports marketing, Nike basketball. I want to sign athletes to the brand. And so I, I emailed Nico. He gave me 15 minutes of his time. 
I, I introduced myself, and over the years, it went from 15 to 30 to 45 to lunch to playing basketball together. And I, I went into one of the Eakin, Eakin summits out in Beaverton, Oregon on campus, and it was at the end of the year. And he said, what are you doing out here? I said, oh, we're doing our product tech sessions to learn about the new products that we're going to be launching in the, in the fiscal year, in the new fiscal year. Um, and also, we had the Eakin of the Year Award last night. And he said, oh, did you win it? I said, no, I didn't. He goes, well, Brian, I only work with the best. So like, I expect if, if you want to work on my team, if you want to work with me, I work with the best. So I expect to see the Eakin of the Year Award. Uh, and so I said, from that day forth, I'm winning that award next year. And really what that took was just being the, uh, a leader on the team uh, across the country of, of North America and, and, and meeting the younger Eakins that are on the team making sure that you're pushing the envelope and, and innovating in a lot of different ways of storytelling and brand experiences at the, at the retail level and with the consumer level and doing different types of events, focus groups, um, activations in retail stores, working with the other brand partners like in brand marketing or sports marketing. And I was doing all of that. I was working with the local grassroots uh, sports marketing group. I was working with the sales team, I was working with the brand teams and I was working with the product teams. So the product teams would come out and do focus groups to get out 12, 16, 18 months in advance of when their products were launching to do to make sure their products were right for the product market fit. And I was doing all that and that whole uh, accumulation of all those different things led me up to be able to win that award. And so what I did, once I won the award, the first thing I did was talk to Nico and say, hey Nico, I won it. And he said, my man, my man, and that was like the next part of the journey for me to like prove myself at that highest level of, of where I currently was at that time to other people outside of the, the, the department of Eakins. And, and uh, I was very proud of it. Still have it here in the office. Uh, I still have it up and, and have it proudly. That's awesome. So from your time being Eakin to then eventually reaching the point where you had Nico's job, uh, that was like over 12 years, which is maybe now when you look back on it, it doesn't feel like a long time, but like, as you're going through that process, are you, are, are you affirmed that you want to keep working at Nike? Like, are there moments where you're like, oh, this, this is what I want to do. I, I feel rejuvenated. Or are you maybe second guessing yourself? Like what, what's your mentality as you're taking these, these next steps to, to climb the ladder? Yeah. So Ni Nike's such an, a, phen a phenomenal company because there's so many different things you can do from an employee perspective. And there's just, and it, we're, they're always innovating. They're always doing new things. They're always at the precipice of, of just uh, looking at, looking at the business from a different perspective. And so for me, I went from Eakin, I went to a sales position in Houston, Texas. I went to a product creation uh, position in footwear for Jordan brand on the training and sportswear side of things. And then that led me to sports marketing. And through that journey, I, I thought I was a Nike lifer. Uh, I thought when I was there, I was, I was going to be there for 40, 50 years, and I was going to retire there in Beaverton, Oregon, have the family there, and, and that's what I was going to do. I loved it. I still love it to this day. Um, and so I didn't have a lot of questions about leaving. It just was the questions of what I wanted to do next. Okay. Uh, the, the great thing about the company is that if you want to go do something in comms or marketing or partnerships or product, you can do it. You just have to find the ways to connect the dots. And what I did, I was a little unique in the sense, what happens in these larger corporations is that there's a lot of vertical movement. 
right? You start off as a brand specialist, then you go to the brand manager, then senior brand manager, then director, then senior director, then vice president, then senior vice president, then maybe CMO. And for me, I went from retail uh, to brand, to sales, to product creation, and then sports marketing. And so my, my theory there, what I felt worked really well for my personality was I got a plethora of experience in a very robust way to be able to then pinpoint, do I like this job? Do I want to do this for a long time? If not, I just learned something that is very intricate in the, in the business space. And I built my business acumen up to be pretty large to then be able to go into sports marketing and run a footwear business for Giannis Antetokounmpo and build signature footwear and build brand campaigns and all that because I understood what those jobs were doing. And so I was able to, to build those blocks up to be ready for the ultimate job that I wanted at Nike, which was sports marketing. Sure. So let's talk about that. So if you can see the posters behind me, I'm a Bucks fan. I'm from Green Bay. So the, the Giannis connection and then later on the Bucks connection is, is really cool to me specifically. But you, you talk about how you, you re-signed Giannis to Nike in 2017. You helped launch his footwear brand. What is a conversation with a superstar like Giannis like to get him to work with your brand to launch a shoe versus the plethora of other brands that are, are cropping up that I'm sure are making just as enticing of sales pitches? Yeah, so 2017 was a really interesting time. Um, Giannis's contract was coming up for renewal. Um, Adidas was coming pretty hard. I think a lot of people probably remember uh, Adidas backing up the truck at the Bucks practice facility with tons of Yeezys in the back. I mean, it was just like three, 400 pairs of shoes. And Thawne Maker, who was an Adidas athlete, brought him out. So afterwards, I said, Thawne, what are you doing, man? Like, you're killing me. I know you're an Adidas guy, but like, you know, he's a good guy. And I, um, so Thawne brought him out there and, and, uh, and he saw the shoes and it went viral. And I said, oh, well, man, like we're, we're up against it. So Susan Mulders and Nico Harrison were also part of the, the deal team. Um, it wasn't just myself. It was a great team to, to be on it. And, and we, we attacked it in a, in a very unique way. And, and, but for me getting to know Giannis the way I did, he was very family first, right? And he, and he's, he's not all about the bells and whistles. He's not, it doesn't have to always be, um, overdone. And so the other brands, you know, they went pretty large. They, they rented out big spaces, lights, smoke, and everything in between of that. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I thought we would do things a little bit differently. And so we rented out um, a space at the Westin uh, Hotel um, in downtown Milwaukee. And I, I, I toured the space and I loved it. There was a place with a fireplace, a sofa, and just a little teeny conference room table that could fit about 12, 15 people on it. So the whole family could be there. And then the, the, myself and the team could be there. And so we got, I got pictures like you see behind me. Uh, that were just of Giannis and his family. We went to Target. We printed all pictures all from his Instagram of him and Mariah, him and his mom and dad, his brothers. We, we plastered them up on the wall. We had some Nike shoes around. We had Greek food. We had J. Cole playing, which was his favorite artist at the time. Um, and we, we did everything that was more homegrown, very authentic to him, not overdone, something where he could feel comfortable. And so that's, that was our pitch. And we went in there and we talked for about two or three hours and it was just breaking down over a two to three hour piece of time of why Nike was the place to be with the product, the technology, the service, the team, the brand, the lineage, what happens after you retire, all those things went into why Nike was going to be the place to be for him. And um, ultimately he selected Nike 
um, and and chose to go with us uh, for a longer term deal. And Signature Shoes started quickly after that. Um, and that's the other thing too, Tyler, really quickly. We did not have a signature shoe that we placed on the table and said, hey, this is your signature shoe. I think other brands did do that. We did the opposite. We said, we're going to sign you for the first year of this first deal. You're not going to get a signature shoe. What you're going to get is we're going to sit down with the product team and build a shoe for you that's right behind me, right right behind me. And, and that is, that's going to be created by you. And that's what we did. And it was 100% with him from shoelace to outsole was all was he he saw and accepted and approved everything and that was our that was another i think position that we took that we just didn't bring something to the table and say this is yours let's build build it together and that's that's what he's about and so it was a lot of fun and uh very very uh interesting times with the competition but you know we came out triumphant on the other end why do you think some brands do that? It, it does seem a bit counterintuitive to bring a shoe to the athlete and say, this is your signature shoe without your input. Is it a speed to market thing? Uh, is it you know ego inflation? Why do some brands take what I assume to be a pretty contrary path to getting somebody to sign with them for a signature shoe? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm not sure if it's more brand focus or it might just be the team that's working on that particular opportunity. And and some of it's probably speed the market. Some of it's like, hey, we got to prove ourselves and we got to, this looks really good. So we could we could add a couple little things, put a logo on the tongue, maybe change something in the in the insole, something that's very, you know, easily customizable or personalized. But I think for us and and the, the way the approach that we took was this is going to be uh, a, a rollout of a brand, not just a product. And so I think what the what a lot of brands are getting to understand at this point in time is these athletes are brands in themselves. So you can't just create a product. You can get, you can create a product and say, hey, go sell this. But there's is there any storytelling? Is there any connectivity to his story or the story that the consumer wants to hear? And so we were really focused on storytelling around him and his family and his love for basketball. And so we were willing to take the time to do it the correct way versus get the speed of the market, which is, I think, to your point, why most people probably do it if they do do that. Um, but I think it's it's more about you know, making sure you're connected the right way versus just getting something out. Are there different considerations that brands like Nike have to have with athletes these days that they maybe didn't beforehand? You know, you talk about somebody like a Charles Barkley or a Shaq having their own shoe. What do you think has changed in the landscape that maybe now appeals to a, a modern day NBA player that didn't 20 years ago? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I think for me in the shoe industry, you have to find an athlete that is able to resonate off the court and you can be a phenomenal player on the court and that's going to speak volumes to you in so many different ways, you know, from, from just overall advertising a brand or a product and saying, hey, go buy this or hey, be a part of this. But I think the ones that really are going to push a product, which I think is pushing a brand, you have to be able to resonate off the court. And it has to be in a way where people that aren't like diehard fans, whether let's specifically talk about basketball, that they might not know who you are because they don't watch games every night. They might not watch SportsCenter every night. They might not be on social like that. And so you have to be able to find a way to connect to people that are that next phase away, the next level away from the game. 
And you're going to get that young kid, that young 17-year-old kid that lives and breathes and sleeps basketball, check. Like, you're going to get that. But when it comes down to that kid that's maybe not as aware, it's got to look good, right? It's got to perform well. But the athlete has to be able to push it. It has to be willing to put in the work to do so. So, and I think that's the part, too, that's changed in the modern-day age is before it was like, hey, a couple advertising, a couple photo shoots, and you're done. Social by itself is another whole job. Right. And so the social teams behind these athletes really matter. And the ones that do it the best have great social teams. Giannis has a great social team behind them with Nick Monroe. And so they are able to build their brand. They're able to communicate and commercialize their products and, and their and their partnerships in a much more broader way than ever before in modern day business. And the athletes that understand that are going to do the best. Um, and that's what brands are looking for, not just guys that are good on court. Because that doesn't always resonate to just being being able to sell something. Yeah, that seems particularly interesting to me in the in the context of Giannis, because I think he's notably one of the more offline NBA stars that we have. Whereas you see somebody like LeBron James, who it, it seems like we know basically every nook and cranny of his interests, and, and he's a very online person. And, and to your point, Brian, I, I think that is an appealing part of LeBron James, where you can feel connected to him as a person, and that might extend your fandom to buying a pair of his shoes, even if you don't watch him every night uh, on, on the court. Whereas with Giannis, it seems like maybe that's harder to pull out of him. And maybe there is some like natural affinity that somebody might have because he he is a, a family man. But I feel like that allure only works for so long. And as, as you say, like you have to be an athlete that's online. So what is it for Giannis, in your opinion, that, that works for him, understanding that he's maybe on the more reclusive side of being a professional athlete? Yeah, he's more reclusive than some, I would say. I think that the difference that he has is that he is, in his own right, <laughs> an everyday person. He does. He is very much like all of us, and and most of the guys are, to be honest with you. He just is able to express it in a whole unique way where it seems like if you sat down and you didn't know who he was, you would have a great conversation with him, which you would because he's friendly, he's open, he's curious, he's always asking questions, he's always trying to learn. Um, and so to me, the little bit of like that genuineness that he has comes across very vividly in a very uh, authentic way. It's not, sure. it's it's exactly who he is. And so I think that genuineness is is the difference that he has versus some of the other guys. And I think those other guys, LeBron, as you mentioned, has that business uh, acumen and that businessman man sense that uh, some people don't have yet or don't showcase as much. And Giannis is, is a very strong business person as well, but I think his brand is genuine, friendly, welcoming, and kind of an everyday personality that you can relate to. And I think that's what he does really well. I think the best brand campaigns that have been done by with Giannis, not just not only just by Nike, are the ones that are the most relatable to him as an everyday person. Um, sure. and, and some of the commercials I've seen with um, the airlines that he works with over in Greece to some of the things he does here in the States with Hulu back in the day, we did a project together with Hulu. It was very much just him being a normal person, but also an NBA all-star and champion. Yeah, I, I want to focus the conversation back in on you, Brian. So you're... You're in year 12 uh, in, in some change at Nike. Um, you've reached what you describe as your dream position. And then you decide to make the switch over to the Bucks after they recruit you. 
um, into the NBA. I want to first ask you, was there some level of vindication, whether it be to yourself or to the other people that would come into the retail store and ask what you were doing, you know, based on the fact that you reached that pinnacle that you knew you could reach? Like, describe a little bit what that feeling was like uh, as you finally got to the, the point that you knew you could get to, but maybe other people didn't believe you could get to. Yeah, there's, I will say that I do have some locker room material that I keep up on my proverbial locker um, that I just remember. Um, Not to prove it to them, but more prove it to myself that, you know, anything's possible. You just got to, you got to put in the work. You got to sacrifice a good deal, um, which I did. And, and, and most people do when they're having success. And, uh, and I, I definitely felt vindicated in a lot of ways. And, and then really celebrated too. I think so many people along the journey um, helped me get here. And it, it it's a community of people. Um, I talked about Coach Tapkis, his nickname's Coach Tapkis, but Jeff Tapkis, Nico Harrison, and so many others had helped me get to where I was going. Tony Dorado is another one who's in at, still at Nike now. Um, and they were the ones that opened doors for me that I couldn't open myself. So it was almost like when I earned that position with the Bucks. So many other people felt that they were part of the journey too, uh, because they were they they went along with me, and it was a long journey from you know division two assistant coach. I had three jobs at the time. I was I was working as a as the coach, and then I worked as a part time um, uh, student at uh, sorry part time uh, teacher's assistant at a local elementary school until one or two o'clock in the afternoon. Then I went to practice, and then did all the individual workouts, and then from eleven to twelve o'clock at night. I, I cleaned the local gym at Brevard um, Tennis Club and I would get a workout in. I would sneak a workout in once I was done cleaning. But I had three jobs there. I went to the retail store, $11.25. And then all those people along the way that helped me get there felt I, I feel like they felt like they accomplished something as well with me. And I feel that as well. Um, mm. And so making that jump was a tough jump. Like I love Nike. I, as you can tell, I still rep it pretty hard. Um, and I love the people there and I love my time there, but the Bucks had a great opportunity that they offered me with a great team behind it, not just the players, but the staff. And, um, and my wife and I took the leap to, to move to Milwaukee. So what was that pitch that they gave you to pull you out of this dream career? As you describe it, you have so much history working at Nike. That was what you were wanting to do forever. And then they must've come in with some sweet pitch to pry you away. So what was it? Well, with John Horst, the GM, uh, you know, he's done a great job. He's secured Giannis. He secured Drew, uh, Drew Holiday and, and Chris Middleton. He's done a great job since he's been the GM. Um, and he's done a great job his whole entire time in the NBA, which spans multiple years, I think over at least over a decade. But his pit, John's horse, sorry, John's horse pitch to me was relatively pretty simple and straightforward. Let's win a lot of championships together and let's have a lot of fun doing it. It was that simple. Um, and I remember as he was recruiting me over those years, he said, Brian, there's going to be a day where you re-sign Giannis, I re-sign Giannis, we win a championship, we're going to be old and gray, sitting on a beach, talking about these stories that we're doing, we're, we're making right now. And, and I kind of remember that, and it, and it was resounding for me to think through that, like, yeah, we did re-sign Giannis. Yes, we did do a signature shoot. Yes, John did re-sign uh, John and the Bucks." re-signed Giannis and then, Hey, let's go win a championship. And, uh, ironically enough in 2020 year. For, in my first season, we won. So, um, I remember right after I signed the contract, 
I was on the phone with John Horst and Dave Dean, and I said to them, hey, I'm, I'm excited to win a ring. Do you need my ring size? And this was before we, the, you know, before it all happened. And, you know, just a little bit of time later, we ended up winning in the whole thing. And so, um, it, that was just an incredible experience. So it sounds like in order to get my Milwaukee Bucks back to winning a championship, we just have to make the call again to Brian Davison and, <laughs> and get you back on the team because it, the, the year it happens, that's the year they win it. Yeah. I wish I could take credit for it. I, I think I had very... <laughs> to do with what uh with what the team did and the coaching staff did but I think you know what I will say there is the work put in to win that championship was not just in that year that ran up to it that season that season it's years and years and seasons and seasons build up to get to that point it's bringing on coach Bud it's re-signing Giannis and bringing Chris Middleton on and signing him to a long-term contract bringing Drew Holiday in and just building like bringing Bobby in and Pat Connington and all the right pieces to that team that was able to do that. And then then all the things behind the scenes that people don't see, right? The sports and performance group and making sure that these players are like top-notch, ready to go. And let's be honest, during that finals run, everybody knew that no one was 100%. But yeah. the work that's done behind the scenes is incredible. So I have very little credit to take there, probably hardly any, but um, the work that I can appreciate that goes on to make that work. And then everything happened the way it should happen or, or can happen. The shots falling in at the right time, 50 point games happening, Katie's foot being on the line, all, all those things matter. And when, and I think the learning lesson there, sorry, Tyler, to say this, but I think the learning lesson there is you have to be ready for the opportunity. You have to be ready to be lucky. And in all that work leading up to it, whether it's my career or the Bucks winning the championship, you have to be ready for that opportunity. And you don't know when that opportunity is coming. You just got to be ready for when it is and you have to hit it when you, when you have that shot. I love that. So I do want to center in a little bit on your role with the Bucks that year. Um, you're the VP of basketball development and affairs. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? It, it sounds buzzwordy in the sense that I don't know you. Based on that, you could have been coaching the guys or you could have been, you know, running the team. I don't know what you're doing. So can you yeah. fill us in? Yeah, I think it, and uh, we were trying to be unique with the title um, due to some some internal uh, preferences on titles. But um, really what it was is vice president of player personnel. Uh, so that's, you know, whether that's NFL, NBA, MLB, it, it, you know, those are all relatively the same type of positions. Um, also known as player development. Some coaches like not to call it player development because, you know, the coaches are developing the players. Uh, but in a sense, what I was doing, I was working with the players every day um, firsthand and my team behind that was with me to build, to build out their businesses from a Bucks perspective, as well working with the agencies of the representatives of the age of the athletes to make sure that the, that the business of, of the Bucks was working smoothly internally um, in Milwaukee. On top of that, we're doing player enrichment opportunities and programming there to enrich their lives and enrich their families' lives, whether that's financial uh, literacy, whether it's family outings um, to make sure that there's bonding going on within the, within the organization of the wives, the kids, the players, the coaches. And so we would make sure that the morale was in check in doing what the coaching staff and the front office we could plan to make sure that, you know, everybody was coming together as a team because it really is like you're a family and you're doing things together every day. 
Um, so those were some of the things that we did. It was really player enrichment, family focus, uh, player development, and really just being overall player personnel to make sure that everything was running smoothly from a player perspective within the organization. Yeah, I want to zoom out and talk now, and this might parlay well into a conversation about AIR, which is uh, how, how we met, and then, and then maybe into your uh, newest project, Sports Business Ventures. But the conversation around what it means for an athlete to have a brand these days, I think has changed dramatically just in the last five years, even certainly in the last decade. Whereas before, the way I put it is you would have had maybe four or five athletes in the NBA back in the 80s and 90s that got all of the television commercials, all of the print advertising. They got all of the endorsement opportunities because one, there weren't a lot of channels for that to happen. And two, you know, there were like only, there was only so much communication bandwidth the league had to promote stars. And so that ended up being like, you know, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, uh, Michael Jordan, and, and that was about it. And so now today you see that there's so many more channels that players can now promote themselves through. There's, there's no more gatekeepers that say, oh, you can't be in this TV commercial or you can't be on the cover of this magazine. If you're savvy enough, you can grow a social media following that inherently has value. And that has turned into more players getting more endorsement money uh, and even a shift away from just straight up, I'm going to pay you to say this thing on this commercial. And that's going to be a one-time check that you're going to cut and never get anything on the backside to players are now developing brands and investment portfolios and growing businesses on the back of themselves as athletes. So can you talk a little bit about what athletes are requiring today as you worked with them on the Milwaukee Bucks that maybe they didn't require a decade ago in terms of feeling enriched or feeling like they're being taken care of from a financial standpoint? Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, like, you know, athletes when in the era that you're talking about, and even still to this day, to some, exp uh, um, to some extent, there is athlete to endorsement, right? Where it's just like, hey, you can endorse this product, you can endorse this brand, and someone's going to buy it or potentially look into it because of that. But then there's the the new look and, and more focused approach of athletes can be enterprises. And, and so that's the approach that I've taken throughout my career, um, in particularly working with high-level athletes, is that you have to look at this from an enterprise perspective. You can build out your social. You can build out your 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 sneaker. You can your your shoe industry. You can you can build out you know off-court branding, your investment portfolio, and you can also look into other sectors of the business that you might not be in. Pat Connington from the Milwaukee Bucks, for example, has three leaf development where he builds uh, developments such as condos, retail spaces, um, um, townhomes, and single-family homes. He's doing that as he's he's playing in the NBA, right? Sure. And so he's building out an enterprise of it in itself outside of just being a player. And so I think there's this there's this new position that athletes are taking where it doesn't have to just be sports related either, right? They're being educated. People are being educated in a whole new way. And I was just talking to a university about this the other day. The traditional education system's great, but you can get on YouTube and you can get on social media and you can find out things that you would have never known before. You can teach yourself new things and new skills and new traits. And these athletes are doing just that. And on top of just finding out what their new skill sets are, what their interests are outside of basketball or whatever sport they're playing, they're also find, finding people that can help them grow that. And so they're building teams around them that are just like your traditional agent and your social media manager, but also maybe the person that's helping with their investments. Someone's helping out with their financial literacy, someone that's helping out with their their charity work. And so 
they can build that out and build an entire enterprise based upon the education that they can provide themselves or the people that are surrounding them. And I think at a, at they're doing that at a younger age due to where we are in media and where we are within social. And so I think that is helping um, athletes that are the top of the top um, in, in the sports industry, but also those guys that are the journeymen, the people that are just the guys that are in the, in the NBA and they're making the most of their time being around CEOs, owners, brands, and, and other business people to build our relationships that are going to be lifelong relationships that they can build businesses around. And so I think, you know, in a nutshell, I think there's opportunities. Opportunities are, are limitless with where they are in the, in the platform they're on. And I think they're taking advantage of it more than ever before. Yeah, I have this hypothesis that the amount of money that's been pumped in the NBA is so ridiculous that those journeymen that you describe are making so much money at this point that they have the ability to create these enterprises as you describe them that guys that were the you know sixth, seventh, eighth guy off the bench 30 years ago didn't have the ability to do because they just weren't making that kind of money. Uh, do, you, do you think it's an expectation that players have now that they're able to do all these things? I I like the downstream effect you describe of just these younger guys being more financially literate for whatever reason. You know, they're able to probably just consume more information than some of the older guys were able to access. But has it become like an expectation, in your opinion, that players have these sort of brands or are there still guys that are OK just cutting, getting endorsement checks cut and, and they don't really have any interest in, you know, growing investment portfolios or companies like like you described? Yes, there's definitely different segments of the athlete that some are are really bullish towards building enterprises and building businesses. And there's others that are, I only want to focus on the game and I only want to do this. I I'm doing this for a finite amount of time. This is what I want to do. This is where my interests are. Hey, agent, Hey, brand manager. If you go give me this deal, I'll show up at the photo shoot. We'll do it. And I think that's the beauty of this is that it's not, I, I think there's some expectation there because it's, it's there. And there's so many people, the NBA league office has so many people that are helping these players out. Um, in their player development departments, the teams are helping out, the agencies are helping out, the brands are even helping out. So I think if you want it, there's people there that are willing to, to, to be there to, to help you build it out. If you don't want it, that's the beauty of this. You can still just do that. Right. And I think there's, there's space for people like that and athletes like that. And I think there should be, I don't think everybody needs to go out and just build a brand because they can, I think if they want to, and they're, they're passionate about something whether that's like the social media manager on the team or that's the the number one player on the team, anybody could do it these days. And so I think it's a matter of the interest level and the passion you have behind it. But I don't, I think there's a little bit of an expectation, but I don't think it's, it's mandatory. And I think it, it should not be, I think it, you should have the ability to have your, your choice of how much you want to put into it because just playing in general, being at that level, um, it's a lot of work in itself. So some guys just want to focus on that and be the best athlete they can be. Is this a recruiting tool that teams will use in, in this player development space to, you know, lure players to their organization? My, my brain first goes to the Golden State Warriors and their proximity to Silicon Valley and how they've been able to allow their players to cash into some up and coming startups that, you know, have both helped from an investment side, but you know, now you can see these players at a cap table and they're all of a sudden NBA player, players that are mingling with venture capitalists and, and you know, f- sexy te- tech startups and founders. So is this something that has 
turned into a recruiting tool or turned into something that can tip the scale in terms of a player deciding to go to a certain organization? I think there's a chance for that. I think, you know, depending on the interest level of that player of being in that location, you know, I think sometimes it's as simple as like, I want to be in LA because it's warm and it's the place to be. I want to live in Phoenix because it's it's warm during the winter. But I also think like there's the ability with the way social media and 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 the overall business of sports has, has evolved over time, you can have a two-time MVP NBA champion with a signature shoe in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And that shoe can do phenomenally well. That business can do really well because they're localized from a physical perspective, but from a digital perspective, they're global. And so I think, you know, the investments will still come to those who search for them. Or if you're strong, if you're good enough, like some of the players we've talked about, the investment opportunities will come to you regardless. Right. And that's about the team you have behind you. So I think, yes, teams can use that as a recruiting tool. I think at the end of the day, players are more focused than ever before on their legacy on the court, right? So I think they see legacy off the court and legacy on the court as two separate things. And I think, so when you look at on the court, you say, hey, who do I want to be teamed up with? Coaching staff, player, front office, and how can we win championships from that legacy perspective? Now, on the other side of the legacy perspective, off the court, you can build teams. You can have someone sit in Silicon Valley. You can have someone sit in New York City. You can have your agent be in Chicago, whatever that might be. They don't necessarily have to be in your city where you play. They can help you get deals. They can help you set up businesses and opportunities. But I do think teams personalize each and every recruiting opportunity. So they will know, each team will do a lot of research. And they will look through that research to say, what is this player interested in? And if they are interested in that, Tyler, they will use that to their ability to, to, to bring somebody in. Um, it just depends on that, that player's personality and their interest. But the, the teams will definitely research that and optimize that if they need to. Yeah, I, I want to talk a bit about AIR now because I think that transitions us well into that conversation. Um, it, it, AIR is, is an app that is, is focusing around these players individually rather than talking about the team or the league as a whole. How do you think about this directional change where I think in a lot of leagues still, I would say in the NFL, it's still very league first, team first, and players seem to be tertiary in the you know their ability to grow a brand or be individual personalities. Whereas in the NBA, which is the sport that Air is focusing on to start, I think it's a really player-driven league. Obviously, we see this all the way back with LeBron making the decision to go to South Beach. Um, we see this now with the increased player movement. Um, players being able to act as you know personalities, media companies, investors, as, as we just described. You know, what is Air trying to capitalize on? Understanding that there has been a shift, specifically in the NBA, towards player empowerment. Yeah, I think there always will be an emphasis towards the league and the teams because there's that affinity towards growing up a certain fan, a Celtic fan, a Laker fan, a Knicks fan, and I think you know you have everybody has an appreciation for what the league has built, right? They built this enterprise that is, is literally global. Um, the players that you see winning MVPs, the players that are winning championships, the amount of foreign players that are coming into this league is incredible. And it's due to the commercialization of the sport um, from a mass perspective. So I think the appreciation is always there. From an air perspective, we're really focusing on the affinity for the player, right? And I think you've, you touched on it that ever, you know, go back two or three, four decades, it's, it's been a very player first league because 
they're right there in front of you. They're playing right in front of you. There's no equipment. There's no helmet. There's no there's no shoulder pads. It's just them. And they're, you could sit courtside to be one foot away from them, and you can see their expressions. You can see their personality. You can see who they are. You can see their style of play, but also how they dress in the tunnel, how they go about their businesses. And so what, what we're trying to do at AIR is connect the consumer to the athlete like never done before. And we're trying to do it in unique ways, right? With new technologies, they're going to enable that to happen in fun, fun and easy ways because the athlete has less time than ever before. We've, we've been talking about their businesses for the last couple of minutes about how they have a lot of things going on, investments, charity, business, brand, uh, and then playing, and then family and whatever else they want to do on their own time. So at AIR, we're trying to find unique ways to connect the dots for athletes to engage with fans and fans to be able to have special moments with these athletes in, in unique ways from a digital perspective. Certainly. So to, to wrap it up here, I want to talk about your newest project, Sports Business Ventures. Uh, you, you discuss, uh, I was reading through on LinkedIn, how, how you and your wife, Ellen, um, who you met at Nike, and she herself is a, um, a former pro soccer player in the NWSL, um, created SBV. It seems like as a way for you to almost like give back in a karmic sense to all of the great mentors that you had coming up. And, and we've talked about a lot of them through this entire, uh, through this entire interview. What compelled you to sort of turn around and, and create content in the sense of, you know, you got helped out and now you feel like you want to help other people out? I, I feel like there could be an argument to be made that you just want to have that impact individually with somebody. And I'm, and I'm sure you have had that impact for a lot of people um, in, in your own career. But, you know, what compelled you to sort of try to broaden this out and, and do it on a larger scale? Yeah, I mean, it, I go back to around 2008, 2009, um, when Jeff Tapkis, who I re referenced earlier, said, Brian, pay it forward. Like, you know, we're helping you help out others. And it stuck with me. And so over the course of the, the last 15 to 16 years, I've tried to do multiple, two to three informationals a week, anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. And some of these people that I've met 10 years ago are now senior directors, almost like executive level people within the NFL, NBA, Nike, so on and so forth. And it just been an amazing journey to go along with them as people did with me. And as I continue to do more and more around the university levels with ASU and Brevard College, um, I have more people than ever before asking me how to get into sports. How did I make it in? What did I do? And, and, I, and I'm, I tell them all my stories and I'm happy to do so. And I said, how do I do this at scale? How do I have this amazing network of people and also this level of experience? How do I give it to someone that might not know who I am or might not be able to get in touch with some of these executives that are doing amazing things in the sports industry? Because what, what I found out is everybody has their own unique story and everybody has their own unique challenges. Can someone else learn from your challenges or learn from your story to be able to help them either make it easier or find out a way through a challenge that they're going through right now that's similar. And so SBV was started based upon creating an outlet and a platform for people to tell stories and celebrate people that have done it the right way and, and, and impact the next generation of people that want to be in the sports industry. And so it is a give back. It is something that, you know, I needed when I was starting. I was a military kid, didn't have a lot of people around me that were in the sports industry and as a whole. And I, ne I needed to find a way in, and I was lucky enough to find some amazing people along the way. And that was by luck, to be honest with you, and I was ready for that luck. And so what we're trying to do is bring that, that access to people 
in different ways, whether it's a newsletter, newsletter, sorry, a newsletter, whether it's on uh, social or through the other mechanisms that we'll be rolling out in the next 10 to 12 months. Um, so we're really excited to get this going. We, we really think we're impacting people's lives for the positive and, and we're hoping to do so by just being uh, stewards of the next generation by paying it forward. Sure, and if I can make my pitch for it, I, I would say two things. One, the question I get most often, um, you know, growing an audience in the sports business space online is, you know, how can I start working in sports? How can I work for you? You know, understanding that I work in sports. And so I think there's probably a lot of really valuable learnings in the content that, that you're putting out and in just reading the, um, the first couple pieces of content that you guys have put out. Um, I, I can imagine how starting in my career, I would have loved to hear those stories and, and try to go in and, and pull out the readings and sort of unearth them as, as, as understandings for my own career. Um, and secondly, it, it, as if this wasn't clear enough, you have some fantastic connections in some of the most prestigious sports brands in the world. So I'm sure that, you know, I know Rachel Baker, who, who works at Duke and has a really interesting role as their general manager, um, is an indicator of that you're going to talk to some really interesting people that um, are aspirational for a lot of young people like myself and, and even younger that, that want to get into sports. So that's that's my little pitch for it. But I, one more question, Brian, I, I want to uh, first let you pitch and, and let people know where they can sign up and, and what they can be expecting from from sports business ventures. And then we're going to close out with uh, one final question. Great. Yeah. So if you want to sign up for sports business ventures, it's at uh, www.sportsbusinessventures.com. There's a weekly free newsletter called the Scatter Report that we will provide access to one executive per week. Um, Rachel Baker was one. We've had someone from the uh, front office of the Milwaukee Bucks, front office of Chicago Bears, um, sports marketing representative at Adidas, and so many others. And we've had assistant coach from the NWSL last week. And we have some uh, some exciting people coming in the near future. And so you can sign up there at sportsbusinessventures.com. It's free. It's every Tuesday morning. And then also we will be bringing out other opportunities for learnings and, and connections within the sports industry in the coming months. So check it out on our socials, on Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn, and uh, we'll be we'll be ready to help you and and follow you, help you get to your dream job in sports. I love that, Brian. Thank you. So I, I want to close out with um, a piece of advice you would have for a, a younger Brian or just a younger person that's interested working in sports. It's Again, I say the, the question I get the most is, how can I start working in sports? And I'd love if you could cater this question to somebody who's especially young. You know, I think people that are in their early 20s sort of come into an understanding of what it takes. But um, I think back to when I was in high school or even just really early on in college. And I just frankly had no idea, like some of the things you were describing early on, just being so willing to pick up trash and, and do whatever it, it took. So if you could give any advice to somebody who is 16, 17, 18, 19 years old and is interested in a career in sports, what would that be? Yeah, two things. Number one, Long-term positive thinking. So think of something that you want to do, create a North Star, and then build the journey to that North Star. And if along that way to that North Star, that that long-term vision, it changes, that's 100% okay. You're on the right path. So I would think of it through that. Build that long-term plan out by something that you think you'd want to do 5, 10, 15 years out, number one. And number two is just do the work. Just do the work, whatever, whatever that is starting your social with no followers, picking up trash at local events, getting a microphone and starting a podcast, whatever that is, like outreaching to athletes or brands or agencies just because you know you want to work there one day and you want an internship or you want to do a retail job. Like you can do it. You just have to get your hands dirty. No job that no one that's successful does not have their hands dirty at some point. 
So do the work, long-term positive thinking, build that plan out, and, and it'll take you to some amazing places that you will not even imagine. You just got to put in the work and continue to push forward. Brian, that's awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Everybody make sure to go subscribe to The Scouting Report. And uh, Brian, best of luck to you. Thank you so much. Okay, Jake, we're back. And I want to hear your big winner from this week. I've got a winner. <laughs> I, I think this is like the biggest winner, actually, and potentially the biggest winner of all time. So let me let me ask you a rhetorical question. If I were to offer you $776 million, mm. would you take it? No, don't answer yet. Don't answer yet. Don't answer yet. If I were to tell you that you would make that in a single year, would you take it? And st- still don't answer that. If I if I told you you had to live somewhere in the Middle East for for a year and the money was a little shady, would you take it? And then lastly, if I told you that the checks would clear and it would still end up in your bank account and you could leave after a year and a half, would you take it? <laughs> I, I I think I know where you're going with this. I To answer your question seriously, I think on the back of Live Golf and the PGA Tour, if we saw anything, it's that those who stuck loyal to the PGA Tour because they were sold this bill of goods, which is you can't take blood money from the Saudis and you're a bad person if you take this money just to get turned around and stabbed in the back by the PGA who was telling them all this stuff and was now accepting blood money from the Saudis, I think, yes, you should take it because all these organizations that say that you shouldn't be doing things because they're scared of the competition. (laughs) I don't even think it's that, Jake. I, I honestly think like if you seriously consider how many things you do on a daily basis that probably funnels money into the Saudis' pockets, it's probably a lot more, you know, it's probably, you probably do a dozen things a day or buy a dozen things a week that in some way directly benefit the Saudis or indirectly benefit the Saudis. And so to say you shouldn't accept the $770 million, I think is a little ridiculous when there are probably people all across the world that are telling you you shouldn't, but are doing it willingly or, or unwillingly in their own right. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the question here is if you can sleep well at night. Right. Well, with $770 million, I sure hope so. Well, but, but the thing is like, so what we're talking about here is Mbappe, by the way, he's, Mm -hmm. he's a European soccer player, plays for PSG, Paris Saint-Germain, and they, he hasn't decided yet. Uh, I think, I think he's leading towards no, but with him, like he's, he's going to make hundreds of millions of dollars in his career anyways. You know, like what's, what's an extra few hundred million to a guy that's already a, uh, a centi-millionaire. Right. Like I just I I think I would sleep a little bit more peacefully at night knowing that I did it a little bit cleaner and I'm just I'm playing and I'm playing I'm playing in Paris or I'm playing around around my family uh, as opposed to just going and playing in Saudi Arabia for for a year and a half. At the same time, you'll probably be able to come back. But go ahead. Do you know who owns PSG, Jake? Is it probably the Saudi Arabian government? I don't know. It's the Qatar investment group. So is that right? As yeah. So it's like to to my point in a very direct way, <laughs> him staying and playing for PSG is probably no. Well, he's on the outs. Worse he's on the outs with them anyways. anyways. He's on the outs with them anyways. But but you're probably point no still better or worse. You know what I mean? Stands. It's and yes. he's he, he's a kid that probably never thought he'd make this much money. And 
I don't get me wrong. If you listen to this podcast, if you watch anything that you and I put out, Jake, you know that neither of us are huge fans of the Saudis or the Qataris trying to whitewash their image with sports and all of the indiscretions that they've had as a country. And I don't think we've we've shortchanged those in any way. At the same time, you're talking about individual people who are faced with like literal life-changing money. And I don't know if you should be so critical of them for taking the money no. as much as you should be the structure for like the Premier League. Why do they let uh, PSG is on the Premier League? Whatever league PSG is in, you, know, you, you see our lack of soccer knowledge play out the here. PSG League. I, that's, I don't know. Maybe they're a league of their own. Why should they be allowed to accept Saudi or golf money in order to increase the value of their teams? Or when the NBA or the NFL or the MLB or PJ Golf inevitably do it, why should they be the ones to not get criticized for accepting money, but the individual players should be the ones getting criticized? So I think there's more of a fundamental issue here. I think it is uh, insane that he's getting offered this much money. And I think a very interesting conversation that's now happening as you saw Giannis yesterday online make a joke about it and LeBron make a joke about it that if they were to get offered this kind of money they would be hitting the town right away it, this oh yo yeah and could you imagine that it's like it, it's crazy I, I don't know yet Jake if this issue of foreign sovereign wealth funds influencing our sports have hit close enough to home yet like golf is a ancillary enough sport in the it's American lexicon it's a to sport. have people, you know, say, wow, that sucks, and then move on. You know, European soccer, very fringe to American fans. But if LeBron James went to Qatar or went to Saudi Arabia to play in a basketball league for a billion dollars and did that instead of playing in the, in the NBA, well, now we might have something to say about it. So I don't know if we've reached the full fever pitch yet of, of what this could turn into. We have not. That time will come. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, maybe they're lovely people. I, I don't know. Like, uh, we, we don't know. We don't know them individually. I think we... Are you trying we, to solicit a $1 billion offer, Jake? All I'm saying is I'd consider it. That's all. If, if, if Sportonomics was offered a billion dollars for a year of episodes, we, yeah. we might have to... We might... Might we have to consider? Yeah. Do we get time off on that? Can we get, uh, <laughs> we get like, a, a week or two buffer? Um, so that's interesting. The other thing that's really interesting is the transfer fees. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if we want to talk about that at all. That's not really a thing in North American sports at all. And I, I, I we were looking at we we chat GPT right before this, so we might be totally wrong on this. But the way that we understand it, and the way that ChatGPT understands it, is that in order for you to, or after you essentially acquire a a person from another organization. Uh, in the soccer world, you have to pay that initial organization a transfer fee. And so if you get their player, you have to pay them whatever they think is a fair rate for that the transfer of that player. And then on top of that, you have to pay for that individual's salary. Um, and so in this case, I think they were willing to pay PSG like $225 million as a transfer fee. And they came to terms on that before they're even able to have a conversation with Mbappe about coming over and playing for them which I think is an official conversation uh, yeah. about him playing with them, which I think is, uh, is is pretty interesting there. Now knowing the parties that are involved, it's really interesting. I Yeah, I think the interesting point there is that doesn't really exist in major American sports. As no. you and I know, Jake, it does exist at lower-level baseball when players get uh, picked up by certain MLB teams. So I'll, I'll just break it down very quickly. When in independent baseball, if you're playing outside of the structure of uh, major minor league affiliated baseball. You're playing on some, you know, partner league team, independent team, and your contract gets bought 
by a professional league club or organization, that MLB team will then pay the independent team that the player was on for the rights to that player. So in, in some sense, that is like a transfer fee. I think the reason it probably doesn't exist in American sports is because we don't have competing leagues at the same Correct. level that yes. international leagues do. You know, yes. there's not like a Premier League and a and a Saudi league. That's just a monopoly. Like there's no reason yeah, there's no reason to steal, steal from everybody within within the same league. I don't want yeah, to steal it, but there's no reason there's no reason to to like the, to put a tax on yes. on yeah, on what's yes. happening inside the league. And yes. of course like, you know, NFL owners would never agree to that because they're the ones that are going to have to pay it. And so yes. <laughs> it would almost be like if the XFL and the NFL were exchanging players and maybe something like that would exist. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, my yeah. my, top my winner of the week podcast. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think so. It's also soccer related though, which is interesting that independently we both brought up soccer related things. Might this be the sign of times are changing in America? No, it is. Yeah, I don't think so. I think I looked at your answer and I, my brain went to soccer and then I knew that was on the top of my mind. So uh, times are not changing. Still, still not the biggest soccer fan of the world, but okay. go ahead, go ahead. Just a simple well, stage. I want to make it clear. You're always going to be one of those guys. I feel like who's going to hold on to like hawker, be, hockey being a major four sport in America. Even no, at it's not point. anymore. I don't think so, but in any case, my, my big win of the week is David Beckham. And this calls into the topic of Lionel Messi coming in, scoring a, a, a free kick to win uh, the game in his first game with Inter-Miami, which was like an incredible moment in its own right in the sports world. But the, the David Beckham connection is interesting to me. And, and I think we've talked about this briefly, but when David Beckham came over from Real Madrid, which is one of these major European soccer leagues, to the LA Galaxy, this was before the MLS had any sort of notoriety internationally. Like the MLS was a real retirement even slash low poverty league. Even yeah, it was not a big deal, not a big deal, right? And so, I mean, like we're talking like arena football level, not a big deal. And so easy now. David Beckham comes over, and people are like, "What the hell is he doing?" And you know, he's taking a bit of a pay cut. He's obviously playing on a much smaller scale. That the stakes are lower. Like from a legacy standpoint, it does, does not add anything for him. But it later comes out that he's given the rights to an expansion team at a set price of $25 million once he decides to retire. And even at the time, that wasn't a great deal because I believe the the most recent expansion team in the early 2010s when he came over here was only going for 30 or $40 million. So it's not like he was even getting cut that big of a deal. You know, the right to pay $25 million didn't seem like a, a, a great pot sweetener, but he did it. And with that $25 million expansion team, he started Inter-Miami. And at the time of doing it, Teams were going for upwards of $100 million, so his deal definitely got a little bit better. And now, as recently as um, the San Diego expansion team, I believe, the the fee for that team was $500 million. So in the grand scheme of things, you see how good of a deal he got. But his vision the whole time, whether stated explicitly or not, was he was going to start bringing over other players, similar, similar to what he did, to the MLS to help grow the profile of soccer in America, understanding that if you're a major star like David Beckham or like Messi, that you can come over to America, have a fantastic quality of life, have these deals that are like generational wealth building type deals. Like Messi gets an equity stake in Inner Miami. He gets equity in Apple. Like these are things that he's not getting offered in Europe because the salaries are allowed to be so high. And he gets to live in Miami. He gets to be a huge star in the biggest market in the world. And that's a pretty sweet deal. And so I think this pathway that David Beckham created, he doesn't get enough credit for. He's obviously the owner and he's the guy that manufactured or, or orchestrated Messi coming over here. But I think he's the winner this week because his path 
that he trailblazed has finally been proven out with the greatest soccer player in the entire world. And the exclamation point was Messi scoring that goal and just proving that he's still great. He can still compete at a high level and that the attention that's now being drawn to soccer in America is exponentially higher than anybody could have ever imagined, especially when David Beckham originally came over here. Yeah. Can I can I call out the, hypocr- the hypocrisy in the conversation that we're having right now? I would love if you didn't. And how, how it's, it is really interesting. So we were just talking about Mbappe and, and how insane it would be for him to go to a country that was not in Europe to play soccer and take this huge financial upside in order to play there and live there and be a part of it. And how that is just totally ridiculous that anybody would ever consider doing that and accepting any type of money from a country that is not European and not a part of like the pure soccer culture in the world. And then you flip that on its head and we're talking about how smart it was for David Beckham to come to the U.S., take the, 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 the financial upside of being here and the very lucrative uh, position of, of being an owner of, a, of an expansion team and having the rights to that and how silly it would be for nobody to nobody else to consider it. And man, we just got messy too. Like, what a great thing that we're doing here. This is this is the greatest thing. And so my guess is that um, around the world, there's probably a lot of people that are thinking the same way that we're thinking about the Saudi Arabian teams with these MLS teams in North America. I've, I don't even know what the, it, there's probably a Saudi Arabian league, I would assume. Uh, and 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 the the teams in the Middle East play each other, uh, in big ta- in big stadiums. We know they have a lot of them after the uh, the World Cup for sure. Um, and I bet I bet a lot of people uh, really hate North America and these MLS clubs for for pulling people over to here and, and getting messy out of Europe. So just wanted to call that out. Just call our ourselves. I think for, that's a fair perspective to have. Yeah, I mean as you as you describe. Us Americans, you know, talking we're the, about... Well, that. we're the best, first of all. We're the best. We're the best, which is what we think. <laughs> and, and and we call out all of the... I think we rightfully call it all the wrongdoings of a country like Saudi Arabia. I think at the same time, a country, especially in the Middle East, could call it all the wrongdoings of America and say yes, that. For sure. Like, like if you look at them, like maybe, maybe their perspective is, you know what? Yeah, we've done all those bad things in the past. Or we've done a lot of things that are maybe like not acceptable in the Western world, but like we're on the come up. Like we're doing these good things now. And like, maybe we're thinking about it the same way. We, like we, we've done a lot of messed up things too, for sure. Um, yeah. Not, not me personally, not me personally. Like, not I'm, you personally. Uh, yeah, no. yeah. 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 But, but you get what I'm saying. I just, I, I think I do, the, I do the, hypocr- the hypocrisy of the conversation is really interesting to me. Um, and we didn't even realize it. I didn't realize it until you're about halfway through. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you called it out. You know, that's what you get on the show, Jake, is just a fair, unbiased breakdown of soccer and a couple and a couple idiots just breaking down transfer fees like they're learning about it for the first time. We no, we correction, we were learning about it for the first time live. Like we, we literally Chad GPT'd this thing to to figure out what the transfer fee was because we didn't really understand the concept of it in major professional sports. About five minutes before the episode started. But yeah. in any case, that's what you get when you listen to Sportonomics. And we'll be back next week with more of this in sports and business. Thank you to Aaron Ryan McFarland for producing this episode. We'll see you all next week.